Now this morning I'm going to invite you to return with me to our study through the Gospel of Luke. And, and, and you may remember, and turning to Luke 17, it's an invitation to turn to Luke 17, uh, you may remember where we had, had kind of left off. Back in chapter 16, uh, just in the first few chapters, uh, of, of first few verses of chapter 16, you may remember that there had uh, been a, a story told, a, a story about a steward who, who had let his position go to his head. And it's the story of servanthood gone bad, where this steward was no longer serving a master, but was somewhere along the way, had begun to see himself as actually an equal and a partner, maybe even a competitor to his own master. But in the end, he had a, an attitude that he was in business for himself at the master's expense, and he was indicted for that corruption and made the correction. Now, that was particularly spoken to the disciples. Uh, in chapter 16, we have certain who got gone bad. And while Jesus began that chapter talking to the disciples, the example ended up actually hitting the, the Pharisees as the prime target. And so Jesus had to address them in, 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 in the end of, of chapter 16. But in 17, he now returns to his original audience in verse 1. You see that taking place. In chapter 17, verse 1, it says, Jesus to his disciples. And in the first 10 verses, he doesn't start with servanthood God bad, but he talks about servanthood well-lived. And when Jesus speaks in these first ten verses, he is speaking to his disciples, he is speaking to you, and, and he is speaking to me about how we are to live our lives in his service. At first, these verses may sound like random uh, words of advice, kind of collected uh, uh, post-it notes put together. But as I read them again and again, I find in them, in these first ten verses, a pattern, a pattern for dedication that actually reminded me of, of, of something that I, I discovered many years ago now when I entered military service. I went to the United States Coast Guard Academy in New London, Connecticut. There, the entire Corps of Cadets lived in a single barracks called Chase Hall. And, and, and as you enter the, 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 the great doors of that hall, you have to walk over the seal of the United States Coast Guard, and emblazoned on the tile around that seal is a motto that somehow has embedded itself into both my brain and my soul. There the motto reads this, He who lives here reveres honor and honors duty. And every day as a cadet, and living in this structured environment of pure obedience and, and military strength, <laughs> Coast Guard is, is tough, um, we'd walk over that. You walk over every day when you walked into the hall. He who lives here reveres honor, honors duty. When you'd walk out of the hall, he who lives here reveres honor, honor duty. You... you, you, you every day would walk across that and it couldn't help but work its way into your heart. To the point where you begin to realize that you could spend an entire lifetime filling in the meaning of that phrase. What does it mean to revere honor and honor duty? <laughs> Think to myself, isn't that a little bit about what our world might need today? <laughs> I was laughing at... Just a couple of years ago, Levi Strauss was running a, a rather provocative ad campaign for... Uh, and it was targeted at men, 
for their Dockers pants. Manly pants. Dockers pants. And, and, and I, I love the ad. I, in fact, I wrote down the words to the script. It was called The Manifesto. Man, you got that? Manifesto? And it goes this way. It says, Once upon a time, men wore the pants and wore them well. Women rarely had to open doors, and little old ladies never had to cross the street alone. Men took charge because that's what they did. But somewhere along the way, the world decided it no longer needed men. Disco by disco, latte by foaming latte, non-fat, men were stripped of their khakis and left stranded on the road between boyhood and androgyny. (laughs) But today, by the way, I'm wearing uh, Dockers, by the way. I thought you should know that. The commercial went on to say, but today there are questions our society has no answers for. The world sits idly by as cities crumble, children misbehave, and those little old ladies remain on one side of the street. For the first time since bad guys, we need heroes. We need grown-ups. We need men to put down the plastic fork, step away from the salad bar, and untie the world from the tracks of complacency. It's time to get your hands dirty. It's time to answer the call of manhood. It is time to wear the pants. Okay, you can go, yeah. I hear those words, revere honor and honor duty, and somehow it elicits a response from within for service to a world throughout. And, And somehow when I came to chapter 17 of the Gospel of Luke, I, see, I, I hear this motto in Jesus' word because here he is speaking to the core of our character. And he is calling us to be his disciples and in being his disciples to be men and women who would be ones noted by revering honor and honoring duty. In chapter 17, verse 1, Jesus said to his disciples, things that cause people to sin are are bound to come, but woe to that person through whom they come. It would be better for him to be thrown into the sea with a millstone tied around his neck than for him to cause one of these little ones to sin. So watch yourselves. He's looking at the disciples in the eye. Watch yourselves. Jesus begins with a fact here, and it's repeated in 1 John, that if we say we have no sin, we lie and the truth is not in us. But what Jesus is saying here is that People are bound to wander into temptation and experience the consequences of sin. They can do it all on their own, but woe to those whose lives have an influence that would cause others to head in that same direction. In the Greek, the word that is translated here is the thing that causes people to sin. It's the, it's the word scandalon. Some of you had it translated in, 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 your, in your Bible as the word stumbling block, a scandalon. Does that sound like any English word you might know? The word scandal. In the Greek, the word describes a, 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 the bait stick of a trap, the trigger that causes a cage to close and a trap to snap. And isn't that the way a scandal works within a community? When you think of the word scandal, it usually describes the sordid discovery that somebody who has appeared to be so honorable on the surface was, in fact, living a lie. And in that discovery, is as if the trap closes. 
Let's face it, we, we live in, in, in a world where our landscape is, is, is littered with the examples of leading figures, people of influence, those who have positions of respect, who find themselves suddenly unmasked to discover that, in fact, they had been living a life above the law as if the rules only belonged to the little people. They didn't apply to them. They were not thorough in their honoring the respect and duty that was called upon from their position. An affair here, a matter of corruption there, an addiction here, a secret life, only it is no secret to God. For even as we read in the Scriptures, surely your sin will find you out. You know the examples, of, but you also know the effect of those examples. I don't know how many times I have talked with people who refuse to even listen to the gospel because of the hurt or the betrayal or the disappointment that came from the scandal of another person's life, one that they had respected, only to find that they were dishonorable. In verse 2, the NIV describes the effect that that dishonorable life will have. The product of the hypocrisy, it causes the little ones, people just growing in their faith, to stumble. It, it says sin in the NIV, but the actual word in the Greek is stumble. The, the life and example of the honest, honorable disciple has others at heart and should promote spiritual growth in others and should produce growing faith in others. And you will note that God does not take that lightly. You live in a way, in such a way that harm will come to one of his little babies, threaten the growth of one of his little ones, it would be better for you if you had had a millstone put around your neck and you'd be rolled into the sea. That's a frightening image. And it was used by Jesus to make a vivid point. You are to revere honor through and through. Because not only does your life depend upon it, but the lives of those around you depend upon it too. And then that comes around down to the point in verse 3. So watch yourselves. Watch yourselves. Take that moment in time to ask yourself, is there an integrity in my life, a thorough honor that is to be found not just in public, but also in the secret places of my heart? In Ephesians chapter 5, verse 15, the Apostle Paul echoes this charge. He says, be careful then how you live. Not as unwise, but as wise. Living with a reflected heart. Evaluating the integrity of your soul. Because you see, when the core is sound, when there is honor in the heart, Jesus then describes how his disciples are capable of performing. The duties, as I have it on your outline, that then begin to unfold the duties that we have. And the first duty that he describes is that we are to be ensure, uh, that we are to ensure the right relationship with others, that there is to be a righteousness within our fellowship. Look at that first duty in verse 3. Now, now I read that and I, I, I realize that, that there are two duties that come out of this. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. Those are the two duties, rebuke and forgive. If he sins against you seven times a day and seven times comes back to you and says, I repent, forgive him. Rebuke and forgive. The first duty, and we have that toward one another. 
For some, the rebuke part may come more naturally than it does for the forgiving part, doesn't it? To rebuke means to call a person to account. What are you doing? What are you thinking about? What's the matter with you? I, you know, I, I say that because I had a roommate when I was in seminary, Antonio Raniero Diorio. You can't get much more Italian than that. Off the streets of Cleveland. And he was the type of guy who, with that very single word, would snap you in the face. Sometimes I'd be doing something, he'd come and say, what are you thinking? You know, What's the matter with you? <laughs> and, and, and that in itself was a simple rebuke. That came from a brother who I knew loved me and who really cared. Now, I've tried to do it in the same way Tony does, but I realize that I'm not wired quite that way, and it takes a little more courage to rebuke. And so rebuking might be simple for some, but it's more difficult for others. But the fact is, where there is sin, you confront it. And in rebuking, you do it usually just with a single word, a clash. We are to rebuke, call each other to account in a gracious, gentle way to get us back on track, but then also we are to forgive. But I want you to notice something about the forgiveness here. You have to work at it. It's not a single type of act. You know, snap out of it. It's not that sort of single act. It's a working act. You have to do it seven times a day. You have to do it seven times a day. Or if you find it in Matthew and the Gospel, you have to do it sometimes 70 times, seven times a day. The response of the rebuke, you will notice, is not very quick. It's, I'm sorry, let's move on. But it issues into a matter of repentance, and so that's why there needs to be some forgiveness. That, 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 that encourages that determination to change, to restore a relationship and to repair a, a trust that has been broken and to redeem a life that has been put at risk. That takes hard work. So you rebuke, but when there is repentance, you also forgive. And that takes the work. And both parts of those occasions are, are, are important. The rebuking of sin reveals how serious the community, the circle of the family of God, is about sin how serious we are about pursuing righteousness and wholeness. And forgiveness then reveals how sincere we are as a community, the circle of the family of God, about redemption and about hope and about the future. We hold those together, rebuke and forgive. Neither of them are easy. But for the one who reveres honor and honors duty, they are sacred duties that make all the difference. I I don't know about you, but I find neither to be easy, rebuking or forgiving. And And I don't have to tell any stories or lay out any instructions because you too also know how hard it is sometimes to forgive and how intimidating it is at times to stand up to sin. It is a task that calls for more courage and grace than we can actually imagine within ourselves. I can easily understand then why the disciples responded to Jesus in verse 5. Because then they say, oh man, if that isn't going to be our duties, look at verse 5. They make their appeal. Lord, increase our faith. To do the rebuking and the forgiving is going to take us outside of ourselves. Lord, increase our faith. And so in response to that, Jesus turns from the honorable duty we have with others to then the honorable duty that we have already with God. Look at verse 6. He says, If you have a faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mulberry bush, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it will obey you. Now notice that Jesus did not answer their request, increase our faith. I I don't know 
of any disciple who hasn't prayed that prayer. I've prayed that prayer. Lord, increase my faith. Increase my faith. You've prayed that prayer. Lord, increase my faith. Those of you who have faced the disasters of even this this last week, you know what it's like to, to, in the quietness of the night, say, Lord, increase my faith. But as far as Jesus is concerned, the amount of our faith is not really what is at issue. I like the way that Leon Morris has nailed it. He said, it is not so much having great faith in God that is required as much as having faith in a great God. Do you catch the difference between those two? Let me repeat that. It is not so much having great faith in God that is required as much as having simple faith in a great God that makes all the difference. I've read through all the debates, and some scholars question the analogy here, looking at the mulberry bush with its deep root system and wondering why on earth would anyone seek to transplant a a tree like that into the bottom of the ocean? Why, that's just absurd. Not really. What I see Jesus saying here is that simple faith can accomplish amazing things and lead to unusual events that you never dreamed possible. The fact is, Jesus is not teaching farming techniques here. As far as I know, we have no record of anyone in the early church of the apostles, you know, beaming forests into the ocean or moving mountains into the sea, but we do have a record of incredibly amazing things and unusual events that were lived through very simple people, simple people with simple faith, being obedient to a great God who is already there. A mulberry tree into the middle of the ocean, (laughs) who'd have thunk it? Well, okay, let's take that. A group of fishermen, tax collectors, farmers, a midget, (laughs) prostitutes. These are the people God used to turn the world upside down. Who'd have thunk that? The whole history of God's people is a who'd have thunk that story. And if that is the case, then just think of what God has to do for you. If only you would trust him in the simplest way. And there's a little grammatical touch here that really does turn the tide on faith. The verb Jesus uses here to describe the tree's obedience is very, very careful. You have to pay special attention to this. He says, speak to the tree and it will obey you. The verb of obedience is called something in Greek called the aorist tense, which is also uh, called the contrary to fact condition in grammar, which means, according to Jesus, That tree was ready to obey the command. It only had to receive it. In effect, what Jesus is saying, if you had had done this, it would have obeyed you. The only thing left to question is the obedience of the disciples to do it. All the conditions are set. It just needs somebody to pull the trigger. And your obedience is pulling it. Now I want you to think of something along with that line. Has there been any leading of God in your heart that you have set aside? Someone you thought, maybe I should speak to that person about their need for Jesus Christ. Or maybe somewhere you thought, maybe I should go and serve. Uh, Any leading from God where you have, whether by fear or timidity, risk, cost, whatever, where you shied away. In fact, maybe it caused you to pray, oh, increase my faith. And then when my faith gets just big enough, then I'll be faithful. Oh, increase my faith. I'm, I'm at about 85% level. When I get to 100, then I will be obedient. 
Oh, increase my faith. It is not the greatness of your faith that is at issue. It is your faith in a great God who calls you to simple action, obedience, duty. And that is what reflects the honor of a disciple of Jesus Christ. Circling back to the phrase, revere, honor, honor, duty, you do it with with others, you do it with God, and finally you do it with yourself as well. Listen very carefully to verse 7. Some of you, let me say, suppose one of you had a servant plowing or looking after the sheep. Would he say to the servant when he comes in from the field, come along now and sit down and eat? Would he not rather say, prepare my supper, get yourself ready, wait on me and while I eat and drink? After that, you may eat and drink. Would he thank the servant because of what he did and what he was told to do? So you also, when you have done everything you were told to do, should say, we are unworthy servants, we have only done our duty. Now, on your sermon outline, I have it that at the end of the day, the honorable disciple is possessed of an honest perspective that allows the ego to be held in check. That honest perspective of a checked ego that is able to look in the mirror and be able to take great satisfaction in being able to say, I have only done my duty. (laughs) Now, some of you may look at this and wonder, where is the love of God in this story? Well, I like the way one pastor has explained it. And he put it in military terms, so I really like the way this pastor put it. He says, suppose a drill sergeant commands a private Make your bunk, shine your shoes, dig your trench, clean your weapons. And the private immediately obeys. Does the sergeant now owe the private a thank you note and a favor? Oh, thank you so much for doing that. I never had a drill instructor even dreamed about doing something like that. Not in any army I've ever heard of, he says. The private simply fulfills his duty, and that is enough. In a similar way, true servants of Jesus Christ should not expect favors from God when they do what they're supposed to do. We can never say, Lord, I had a loving attitude today, so you owe me three blessings and an answered prayer. God does not owe us gratitude. We owe him. He is not our servant. We are his. And we are the ones then who live with that motto at heart. We will revere honor. We will honor duty. And that is more than enough to be able to call this a good day. So the question is, how are you doing? How are you doing? As, you, as a child of God, are you growing up? Is there an integrity to your life and a sincerity to your service, a growing obedience in your faith, and a satisfaction that it is all being done to the glory of a great God? The love of God is such a wonderful gift. And having received it, the rest of life now becomes an act of thanksgiving, which we, 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 we express by living with care and obedience, and growing maturity. A child of God, that is what, where we began, but to become men and women of God. That's what he's meant us to be.